How did Jesus defeat the powers by losing to them? This is the Bible Reset Podcast, brought to you by the Institute for Bible Reading. Welcome to the show. I'm Alex Goodwin, here with Paul Kennedy and Glenn Powell. This is the second part of our short series on the powers and principalities in the Bible, so If you haven't listened to part one yet, we'd recommend going back and listening to episode 35. Last time we explored and unveiled these characters that the Apostle Paul calls the powers and principalities, although they're referred to by a number of different names throughout scripture. We talked about how they've rebelled against their intended roles in the universe and instead worked together with humans to kind of wreak havoc on God's created order. So today we're going to see the role that Jesus plays in this cosmic struggle between the creator's goodness and these forces of chaos and how the gospel books really in many ways are actually battle stories. Yeah, that's right, Alex. I think the ministry of Jesus is presented in the Bible as a confrontation between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. In Jesus' words, it's all about the reign of God coming down from heaven to earth. And so there's a clear implication there that somebody other than God has been reigning on earth. Hmm. So it's interesting. In the First Testament, the battle against evil is typically portrayed as a battle against people or empires. It's embodied some way in the creation. But now Jesus redefines the essential struggle as one against the deeper spiritual forces of evil. I think this is one of the things that his disciples just didn't get that Jesus was saying, we're not going to fight Romans or empires or bad people. We're going to get down to the root of the problem, which is this deeper struggle, this deeper battle. So the key question in the Gospels really is, who will rule the realm of creation, the realm where humans live? And I think this background is really crucial. Jesus comes precisely as the Son of Man. That's his own self-designation so often in the Gospels. That is, he's the truly human one. He has come to reassert the proper ruling function of humanity. So when we read the first creation story, Genesis 1, the humans are put in charge. When we read other references to creation, like Psalm 8, it says God has put humanity over the creation and all things are to be subject to them under their feet, as it says. This background is really crucial for understanding the work of Jesus. That he didn't just come as God, but he comes as the truly human one to restore this basic human vocation. I think so often we think in terms of salvation as a rescue operation to just get us out of trouble, but it's more than that. It's about putting us back into our proper place as humans in God's world, and that's a ruling function, which is is really in the Bible a priestly function, representing God to the rest of the creation. And if we don't see that in the Gospels, we're missing at least half of the story. Yeah, Glenn, you're right. You know, when you shift from the First Testament to into the Gospels, there's this immediate and stark contrast between references to the powers and, you know, what we saw throughout the whole First Testament. And it's, it's not like the First Testament is completely quiet about it. In fact, again, it kind of raises its ugly head. Mm. In the in the very first story, and it must have been kind of shocking to the first readers of the story. You know, everything is going along beautifully. You know, God has created this paradise, and then all of a sudden, 
this creature slithers onto the scene and like nobody saw that that coming. Mm. Um, and, you know, it, you know, there, it's more kind of hints and clues, I think, is the way I think of it in in the First Testament. And you see it again, you know, pretty quickly in the story, you know, where Cain has become jealous of Abel and, you know, God comes to him and asks him, why are you so angry? And then he says, you know, sin is crouching at your door like a wild animal ready mm. to devour you and you must subdue it and be its its master. Um, so anyhow, th- those kinds of things happen again and again. There's other hints and clues, you know, an evil spirit from the Lord comes upon Saul and, uh, you know, there's this weird story and um, Daniel about an angel on a mission of mercy and he gets stopped by a, a what is it? The Prince of Persia or something yeah, like that. Another angel of another, another nation, another age of another, yeah, of another, exactly. another nation. So it, at any rate, um, you know, that's, that's the first Testament. And then there's this massive shift when Jesus appears um, on the scene and now the invisible powers are showing up everywhere in all kinds of forms, outright demon possession. You know, there's the story in Mark about this, this, this man who has just been devoured by other powers. He lives in a graveyard. He howls in the night. He cuts himself. And, you know, when Jesus says, what is your name? And from his being is, I'm legion for we are many. And people in that day would have understood this was a comparison. You know, the Roman legion mm. was was ruling over over Palestine. But now here's another legion, uh, right. a different legion. And to your earlier point, Glenn, Jesus makes it clear that this is the legion that he's really come to, to fight. And then, you know, there's it's depicted as uh, powers um, that are the cause of physical disease, not always, but in some cases. And so you have, again, these stories about the bent over woman. Uh, you know, she's been crippled for 18 years. She can't straighten up. She can't see birds flying overhead or starry nights. And it says that Satan has held her captive for 18 years. And then we see um, the powers as represented in moral evil. Um, you know, Jesus calls the Pharisees sons of the devil. And even to Peter, one of his own, he says, you know, get thee behind me, Satan. And so, yeah, again, we go from hints and clues to in your face uh, in the story of Jesus. And Glenn, you know, last week we talked a little bit too that these forces even show up and are depicted in, in nature. And um, something that, again, we don't think about. I kind of took a shot at it, but I think mm-hmm. you, you, give, give us some, uh, some local color on this. Yeah, I, I think it has to do with, you know, this is part of reading the story big in the Bible. And, and when you read big, you read in context. And so when you come to the stories of Jesus and you keep in mind the thing you've learned in the First Testament— about, for instance, wild water being a representative of chaos in the world. That's where Leviathan and Rahab dwell, and they bring harm to humans and to the creation. So when we read a miracle story where Jesus calms the water, for example, I think typically I've heard about that, you know, when it's been preached on and so forth. You know, this is proving, again, Jesus' power as God, power over the creation. But we haven't always heard there the echoes of the First Testament that says, 
the wild waters are the places where chaos dwells, and it's a threat to humanity and to the, the order of the creation. So we need to read it at that level also. Jesus is taking on the powers of chaos when he calms the storm and when he walks on the water. And I think it's this general thing of reading with your eyes open and, and remembering what you've learned earlier in the story as you're reading later. So when Mark says, the beginning, Jesus goes out in the wilderness to confront the great spiritual power, Hasetan, and the devil is tempting him. Mark says he was with the wild animals. Again, I think um, it's not reading too much into that phrase, I think, to remember that in the prophets, the wild animals were always what came over a place after it had been attacked and defeated and abandoned by the humans. Then the wild creatures take back the creation that the humans are supposed to be bringing order to. And so Jesus goes out to where they are. This isn't a mm. cute little wilderness scene of Jesus loves nature. This is about the wild animals that wreak havoc. And that's where he takes on the devil and the prince of this world. So it all has to do with the powers. And the gospel writers set that scene early in the story so we know what Jesus is actually doing. Yeah. And like you said, Glenn, it just feels like such a fuller picture of what Jesus was up to beyond just proving that he was God, as we all always or often uh, kind of minimize it to, you know, proving that he was God and then going to the cross. You know, that, that exactly. sort of seems to be where it uh, often gets taken. And uh, instead, these are really direct conf confrontations with God's adversaries that have been showing up throughout the story of Scripture. And he's going into all these different places and taming them, overpowering them, showing his, mm. uh, you know, both divine and human vocation over the, these chaotic forces, right? It's just such a fuller picture, I think, of, of all of that. And really, I think we could talk at length about these various interactions throughout the mm -hmm. earlier parts of the right. Gospels, but uh, let's go ahead and zoom in on Jesus's final days in Jerusalem. Yeah, so the battle comes to a head, of course, in the ministry of Jesus when he enters Jerusalem. And he goes there and he tells his disciples, this is the big confrontation. Um, in Mark's gospel especially, there's this ongoing kind of teaching moment that Jesus has with his disciples, and they're thinking he's going there to kind of announce himself as king and, and be the one who conquers all of Israel's enemies, you know, presumably the Romans. And the disciples are thinking, yeah, they're going to sit on his left and his right and have these great spots in the new kingdom. And they can't understand Jesus' point that he's there to take on the powers. And it isn't inconsequential that Jesus chose Passover as the time when he's going to come and, and have this greatest confrontation of his entire ministry. The prophets, of course, had told Israel to expect a new exodus. Just like the first exodus, it would be an event of liberation, of God showing up to help his people. So when Jesus chooses Passover, as his final week, the time he's going to be in Jerusalem and confront the powers, he's, he's saying by that very action that this is the great battle. This is the new exodus. This is the moment that Israel's been waiting for, and it has nothing to do with fighting the Romans. It has to do with defeating the deeper spiritual powers. So is he going to die for the sins of his people? Of course, that's part of the victory. But it's also a victory in, in a more of a battle sense that really is he's fighting the powers this week, and the cross ends up being the way he's going to do that. 
So this is the time when the powers um, also realize that everything is at stake. Hasetan enters Judas, one of the twelve, um, gets him to betray Jesus. I think the powers are thinking at this point, we have to eliminate this guy. He's been casting out demons. He's been calming water. He's been healing people. He's, he's ruining our reign over the world. So they're like, what do the powers always do? They kill and destroy. So the powers decide to kill and destroy Jesus and just get rid of him as an opponent, um, not understanding, really, that it was this act in, that was actually spells their own doom. So they do this. Um, Jesus is condemned by corrupt human rulers. And again, we see this idea that um, the powers and the humans are in partnership. The powers influence people to do things. That's how they operate. And so Jesus is put to death through the agency of humans, but also by the instigation, if you will, of the powers. So they're at work here as well. And then this thing that they never saw coming, right? Three days, Jesus is raised from the dead, and he stands on the earth again. Just think about what the powers were thinking when they saw the resurrection. They're like, oh, we, our usual trick of just getting rid of people didn't work this time. Here he is standing yeah. on the earth again, and now in even, even, you know, just full of power and glory as the raised, the new human. And I think um, this is surprising in the story. We're so used to, to hearing about the cross and the resurrection. I think we lose the sense of what an utter and complete surprise it was for his disciples and for everyone to see a crucified man standing alive on the earth again. It's remarkable in the story. And it, and it shows us that that's the way the battle actually went. And I think we should never forget that, again, it's not about proving Jesus was God. It's about putting a new Adam back on the earth, someone who will have authority over the creation for its own flourishing, the way God intended, and be over the powers rather than having the powers be over the humans. So it's an amazing story. I mean, we could spend many sessions just talking about the implications of all that, but it's, it's the reassertion of a real human, uh, a good human, a pure human, um, fulfilling God's desire, and Jesus is the beginning of the renewal of the human race. Yeah, this is, this is great, Glenn. And, you know, in all honesty, the, uh, the Jesus image is, th this, this is often not included. Jesus mm -hmm. is the, the one who comes and who is nice to children, sits them on his lap. He's a great teacher. He says, you know, things that are contrary to what the mm -hmm. Pharisees are saying, but this hard work uh, to face the principalities and the powers is frankly just often left out of the story. So just to recap, you know, what does Jesus do? He overpowers them in, in his ministry. Uh, he doesn't lose, I don't think, in any of the confrontations. Right. And he doesn't, doesn't win any like half victories. It's not like, you know, this, this person, you know, were made, this person was made mute. Uh, and now they could speak, but you know, they kind of, you know, well, it was, it was garbled. <laughs> there's, there's none of that. <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, his disciples oftentimes can't get the job done. Jesus comes down off the Mount of Transfiguration and we see this young boy who is constantly convulsed and, and 
throws himself towards the fire. Uh, again, an indication that the powers are cruel. They're going to enslave children along with adults. And, you know, Jesus, Jesus declares victory and, and, uh, and heals him. So, yeah, he overpowers them in his ministry. And then I think, as you've just mentioned, he disarms them and he dis- defeats them um, on the cross. Um, again, something that often flies under the radar. So we, we, I want to look at just a quick text here in, in Paul's letter to Colossae. He says, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. Yeah, we just fly past that, but I think this is an image that would be perfectly understood by first century readers. He's referencing probably a military parade. So we know in that day when a military general would return from the battlefield, he would come with his captives in tow. And this was meant to demonstrate um, military dominance and superiority. And I think this is what Paul is saying that Jesus did on the cross. He won this massive victory. In a sense, there's like a new sheriff in town. And uh, the the bully outlaw, the god of this age, you know, is is going down. And it's a beautiful paradox, Glenn. I've learned this from you. Um, you know, when we we've talked through this thing, that that Roman crucifixions were designed to be a spectacle. Right. Uh, they weren't like our crucifixions, where you you know get a few relatives and watch a person you know executed. These were done publicly on hills to demonstrate this is what happens when you step out against, uh, against Rome. And so Jesus was made a spectacle of when he was on the cross. He's stripped naked. You know, the text is very clear about that. Mm. It's, it's, it's humiliation. And yet there's another spectacle that's taking place that Paul describes that nobody saw, nobody was aware of. And it was the spectacle of the powers being defeated. Yeah, I mean, that, just think about that image. I mean, as Jesus looks his weakest and worst, Paul says that's exactly the moment when he made a public spectacle of the powers. So that's when actually they were being humiliated. And again, it's paradoxical language. It's language we would never have anticipated. The disciples didn't see it coming. And I think if we take that out of the story of the gospel, um, we miss something crucial about God's power. And as we're going to see, something about how we're supposed to operate in the world according to the same paradox, according to the way of the cross. So everything is at stake in kind of seeing and understanding that paradox. All right. So moving forward to today, you know, this happened 2,000 years ago. Christ has dealt this death blow to these powers, but uh, not to state the obvious here, but from from my standpoint, and as I look out to, to the world and read the news, it, it still feels like these powers have quite a bit of influence over how things run today. Can we talk through that reality? Yeah, that's a pretty big deal. Because as you say, you look at the world, you're like, really? The powers were defeated? Uh, yeah. The powers were humiliated? They seem to be fully in charge of things, like everywhere, including the creation and the chaos we see in the creation. When creation rises up and hurts people with wild weather and chaos into their lives, 
that also is related to the story of the powers in the Bible. So what's up with that? And it, it comes back to this point we've talked about before here of that we are living in the in-between time, in what the Bible calls the already of the victory of Christ, but the not yet of his final defeat of evil. So we're living mm -hmm. in this in-between space. And we've used the analogy before, I think, of D-Day and Victory Day, for instance, in the battle in World War II in Europe. So if the decisive battle was turning the tide, retaking Normandy Beach and the, the landmass of Europe and starting to push the Nazis back, that's great. And it, it, it changed everything. But if you're in a village in northern France, and you have not yet been liberated, it doesn't feel like anything has changed. It feels like the powers are still in charge. And that's that kind of, we have to think about, that's the kind of place where we live, according to the story of the Bible. So we're, we're in this time. In fact, you know, in the book of Revelation, we might even pick up the idea that because the powers know that their time is short now, and they've suffered their decisive defeat, they're even more angry. They're riled up and seeking to do as much damage as they can before their complete and final defeat at the return of Jesus. So that's the intense time in which we live. Hmm. Um, so I think what we have to then turn to is say, okay, what does the rest of the New Testament do with that idea? Because the first followers of Jesus, as the gospel went out into the Mediterranean world, were faced with exactly the same question. How does the defeat of the powers relate to our life today as we're trying to follow Jesus in the real world. I think it really comes down in Paul, especially to two key things. First of all, we proclaim the wisdom of God. That is, the powers suffer ongoing defeat through the revelation of God in Christ. That is, as, as the church makes the gospel announcement, not just of human forgiveness of sins, but also of the defeat of the powers. The announcement itself, according to Paul, comes with power. And so the announcement is part of the way the world, but even the powers, learn and acknowledge their fundamental defeat on the cross. And so I think this is a really important point, because if the church ignores the story of the powers when it proclaims the gospel, then that element is not happening. If all yeah. we do is tell people your sins can be forgiven and, you know, you can go to heaven when you die, like we typically say, and that's what most people would think Christianity is about, this story of the powers and the battle against the spiritual forces of evil and the victory of Christ in defeating them, if that's eliminated, then we're really telling only half the story. And part of the way the powers are defeated is when we announce publicly that's why gospel is called good news. In, in the ancient world, it was typically the announcement of a victory after a battle. That's where the word came from. It, it goes way back even in the First Testament, um, and then you see it in the New Testament. The Romans used the word gospel to announce their own victories. This is the good news of the victory of Rome. And so we have to bring that language back into our understanding of the gospel and it's, a, it's really a crucial part of embracing the wisdom of God that, and, and this is remarkable, that when Jesus died on the cross, he was winning a victory. And so when Jesus invites us into the way of the cross to take up our own cross, that's part of the way we will defeat the powers as well. Wow. Um, 
I mean, this this makes me think, frankly, about Paul's statement when he's outlining for the early church the uh, the participation of the Eucharist, and mm-hmm. he says that when we partake of the Eucharist, we proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. And so you wonder if in the first century, uh, to your point, Glenn, you know, as people sat quietly and thought and meditated, at least like I remember them in church when I was, mm-hmm. you know, in elementary school, people with their heads bowed and their eyes closed. And I always wondered, what are they thinking about? You know, and uh, what was always taught to me was they were thinking about how thankful they were that their sins were forgiven and that they were going to heaven. And we don't want to take that away from no, anybody. No. I mean, those of us that have lost loved ones, you know, we we rejoice and in the idea of the resurrection. But uh, it sounds like those first century believers, they thought about the victory as well that had been won. So this is a, a redefinition or at least a massive expansion of the gospel message itself. It's so much more than about individual salvation and an individual right relationship with God. And N.T. Wright, you know, masterfully talks about this, that the gospel is good news about something that didn't happen just to me and in Jesus, but it made the world itself a different place. That this is this is truly um, a marvelous cosmic gospel. Yeah, I think yeah. you know um, you may have heard the phrase reenchantment. You know, like people have talked about the reenchantment of the world. Um, I think we need to talk about the reenchantment of the Bible's story, uh, the reenchantment of the gospel. Um, to enchant means to literally to to bring a spell, to say the words that have power over some part of the world and can bind it or loose it. And I, I think we have to think of the Bible as an enchanted story. It is words with power to, and this is Paul opens his letter to the Romans with this kind of language. The gospel announcement came with power, right? Not, Hmm. and just the announcement of the gospel itself, that that is the announcement of words that have power to make things happen in the world, to change human hearts, and to to let the powers and principalities know that they've been defeated. So I think we need to think of the gospel as this bigger thing. And you're right, Paul, it's a redefinition, um, which doesn't lose anything that we've had in our gospel but it's this bigger, fuller, richer, deeper picture of what the victory of Jesus entailed. And, and the, the, the announcement we make to the world is that the world doesn't belong to the powers anymore. It is God's world. It is God's reign coming to earth in the kingdom of God. And the words themselves have this power. All right. So we, we proclaim the wisdom of God. We, we declare this, this gospel, this good news. Um, but what's also important is how we declare it, right? So if we're proclaiming the wisdom of God, we do it in a way that reflects the wisdom of God. So I was just thinking about how the phrase crucified Messiah is like in the first century, I'm sure, like an oxymoron, right? It's like jun- jumbo shrimp or something like for right. a Jew that just makes no sense. <laughs> there, there's, there's tension in that phrase itself, right? Like Paul, I think, writes about how it's um, nonsense to the Gentiles and and a scandal to the Jews, but this is our model, right? Crucified Messiah is our model. And so we don't wage war in the way that the, that the world does. And we don't bring this message forward, mm. um, kind of in a weaponized 
form, right? Right. And this comes to the, I said there were two main things that Paul taught us about our life with the powers today. The first one is to speak the wisdom of God, to declare it into the world. The second one is that we have to operate in the power of God. And I think, again, we always have to think in terms of these gospel redefinitions. The power of God is revealed on the cross preeminently. And, th and this is shocking to the world. It's shocking to us. Everything in our system tells us that's not power. Power is winning. Power is domination. Power is forcing people to do what you want them to do. But the cross says, no, the single greatest, strongest power in the world is the power of self-sacrificing love. So Jesus says, we have to willingly take up our own crosses, and in this shocking language of Paul, fill up what is lacking in the suffering of the Messiah. Hmm. Like, that's amazing. Wow. Right? There's something like Jesus' suffering isn't over yet. Well, we're his body in the world. And so we have to walk in the way of Jesus, not just take the benefits of Jesus. And that means walking in the way of the cross. That means our own commitment. Basically, what this means, I think, is it's our own commitment to be servant rulers over the creation, to give up, to give up our rights, give up our prerogatives sometimes even to give up our lives for the sake of the well-being of others. That's the way that Jesus showed us. And so what Paul says, it's actually when we walk in that way that the power of God is released into the world. So it's no longer about fighting flesh and blood. It's no longer about winning violent battles. It's no longer about using force. This is about serving others in love. And that's what defeats the powers. And this is, this, there's really nothing in us naturally that makes us think that that could possibly be true. The world calls such people losers. And I think that's hmm. the test for people of Jesus today is are we willing to embrace not just the benefit of knowing Jesus and having our sins been paid for, but are we willing to walk in the way of Jesus in order to defeat the powers in our own time? That's really the challenge that um, I think the gospel brings to us. And that's what Jesus said. He said, this isn't for everybody, but if you want to be my disciple, you have to embrace your own cross. Yeah. So one, one small point of clarification for me, just so I understand, right? It seems like the cross is really the primary mode of operation, right? If we're following Jesus's way. But as we just talked about, there, there is an element in the gospels where he does overpower the dark forces right where he casts out demons and where he does uh kind of exert power as we maybe would typically think of power can you talk about how those two things interact with each other yeah that's that's a really interesting thing because it, you could almost say well at the at the end of his life he kind of operates differently than he did during his ministry which was really to right. dominate right he forced the demons to do things um i think the distinction is important there again in his redefinition of the battle. So the only thing that he ever tried to dominate were these spiritual forces of evil, never people. He's not trying to force yeah. his will on people. He's not using um, violence. He's making sure his disciples know this is not going to be a physical battle. Um, and, and so he only uses this kind of power mode that we traditionally think of as power when he's dealing with um, the spiritual forces of evil. 
never against people. So we need to follow that as well. It's like, it's true that there's a place where the power of God will simply overwhelm, I think, all the evil in the world and will eliminate it. Um, but that's that's in the spiritual realm. And and basically part of our living in the acts of the story that come after Jesus is it is never appropriate for us again to use physical force to advance the kingdom of God. That era is in the past. It was based on a, not a full understanding of the powers and where the battle really was. So again, for us, I think it's okay. And certainly I believe that there are times, um, especially in places where the gospel is confronting a culture for the first time, where words with power can be spoken to drive out demons, um, to ask God to heal people. And that kind of matches the ministry of Jesus. But when it comes to fighting evil at its deepest and hardest place, I think the Bible's clear that the cross was his ultimate act of power. And so that's our ultimate tool in our own war chest, if you will, is to be servants who love people, even at personal cost. Now, this is this has been um, this has been rich, and I think we could all conclude that this whole topic of the powers and the principalities is something that has been underexposed in the church, and also has been abused. I was thinking, you know, this week about what is still a black eye for the church today, where you know, when did the Crusades happen? About a thousand or so mm -hmm. A.D. where we decided that uh, the powers were and the forces that we needed to defeat were were the Muslims, and we needed to drive them out of the land that belongs to you know God's people. And this was just a complete uh, misalignment with the cross, with the way Jesus addressed the powers. And whenever we do this, uh, we do harm to our witness, and we do harm you know to the gospel and. You know, I, with, without going into too many details today, I think we still have um, lots of the people of God who believe that the way we're going to defeat evil is primarily in the political arena. And so all mm -hmm. the talk centers around that. And I get emails every week, you know, with that strategy, if we could just move this person out of office and move this person into office then evil, you know, would be, would be defeated in the world. And we wonder how long it's going to take before we realize that that, that really isn't the way of, of the cross. And so um, here we are. We live in this day and age. Uh, Paul's kind of closing words to the Ephesians was to put on the whole, the whole armor of God, uh, not something specifically addressed to individuals, although it's an individual practice, but the way it's spoken in Ephesians, that as the body of Christ, we are to put on um, the power of God, and we are to be aware of, of the enemy. We are not to be um, ignorant, uh, Paul says, of his devices. We are to know that if we're going to live successfully in this world, it probably helps to know the Enneagram and have 15 rules for living and and uh, you know have good health habits and so forth, but that's not nearly enough. That is the people of God. We need to know about the powers and uh, live into the into the story mm -hmm. of the cross. And then you know when the evil day comes, that's kind of Paul's final right. salvo in in Ephesians. He says, "Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the evil day comes, 
you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. So uh, we see uh, some some major um, outbursts of evil in the world today. We think about it here, I think, in the West, where there's all kinds of conflict taking place between churches and families and fractions and so forth. But, you know, places like Afghanistan and others as, as well. This is this is, I think, something of an evil day, mm. and we're to put on the armor and uh, to stand. Yeah, and I think I think those elements of the armor, if you look at them individually, they kind of you know all come back to the wisdom of God and the power of God, um, which which are counterintuitive concepts to the way the world typically defines those two terms. Yeah. Hmm. Well, thanks, guys. This has been good. Uh, I've really enjoyed. This conversation, it's always just enlightening and, and exciting for me. Uh, but for our listeners, this wraps up our little mini series on the powers and principalities in scripture. Again, we think it's a super important topic, which really actually has significant implications for how we share the gospel message itself. And we probably could have talked a lot more about it, and maybe we'll come back to this topic in the future and, and dive back in and, and explore other parts of it. But for now, Glenn has actually written a six-part series on the powers on our blog at instituteforbiblereading.org. So I'll go ahead and put some links to that series in the show notes, and you can go check it out if you want to read up more on this topic. Finally, we've actually got some really exciting news to share. There's been a generous donor who has stepped up and offered to match a year's worth of donations from new changemakers who sign up between now and December 31st. So changemakers, if you're not familiar, is our community of donors who have pledged monthly gifts of any amount to help us change the way the world reads the Bible. So if you sign up to give $10 a month, which would be $120 a year, your impact will actually be doubled to $240. $50 a month goes from a $600 impact to a $1,200 impact. I think you can do the math. So if you'd like to support our work, including the production of this podcast, now is a great time to sign up. And you can do that at instituteforbiblereading.org slash changemakers. And don't forget, the matching gift goes away on December 31st. That's all we've got for this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next one. Mm